Western herbal medicine is yes. what you will generally talk about. Very fascinating topic, Jane, and we'll uh, spend a little bit of time looking at some of the most representative herbs in Western herbalism. Honey is one of your big interests, and beekeepers, of course, we need them to get the honey that we love. Oh, very much so, Jane. I think it's opportune to mention in that context that tomorrow at Tokal College um, is an annual event which is one of the most important events, in my opinion, in the beekeeper's calendar. Uh, a day when people can go to that uh, wonderful place and uh, learn how to start with bees, keeping bees, how to go about constructing a hive, what to look for, safety features. Uh, it's on this weekend, it's on tomorrow, and for anyone in our area that's listening to the program who is indeed interested in beekeeping, as I am, and I know there are many other people are, I would suggest that this is a great opportunity to get into it and bring yourself up to speed and meet the whole community of people that are fascinated with bees and who believe, as I do, without the bee, we're in big trouble. <laughs> I think you're right. Mm. <laughs> bee for big. Yes. So Beekeeper's Day, isn't it, at Tokala College it, it, tomorrow? It, it, I know that some of my relatives will, will be there and they've just started um, getting into bees with great interest and fascination. In fact, they're taking their grandkids with them mm. because the grandkids also are interested in it. So this is wonderful and I'd like to think that this program has had a little bit to do in encouraging people to think about honey, to think about bees, to think about the importance of bees and to, to become involved in, in making sure that in Australia we continue to arguably lead the world in producing some of the finest honey and with an industry at this stage that hasn't been affected by some of the devastation that has hit beekeepers throughout the rest of the world. Mm. And while bees themselves and the product they produce mm. is honey is not quite a herb, they do need herbs and plants oh. and herbs are what we're going to talk very, about Very, very much so, very much so. <laughs> so Western herbal medicine, yes. we're going to think about just yes. what it is really. Look, I think it's, it's a, a term that's becoming, uh, how can I call it, increasingly defining. In Australia at present we have many systems of traditional medicine being practiced. We have Ayurvedic medicine, which represents the medicine of the Indian continent. We have uh, Chinese traditional medicine. We have various systems of traditional medicine, most of whom also um, use, uh, use herbs. So what is it that separates Western herbal medicine from these other systems? Uh, and I practice predominantly Western herbal medicine. The things that define Western herbalism, uh, I would uh, suggest, are two things. That Western herbalism has uh, opened itself up over the years to a scientific analysis. So that Western herbalism these days is better understood from a scientific perspective as to explain how many of the herbs that comprise the Materia Medica of Western herbalism are now pretty well understood as to how they work by virtue of understanding some of their chemical constituents. So I would argue that Western herbalism is probably uh, unique amongst other systems in that it embodies, if you like, the Western predilection to try to explain everything along logical scientific lines. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, 
Western herbalism also and never ever leaves behind the rich tradition that goes right back to the time of the Greeks. As wonderful the forebears of our culture, our ideas, our democracy and our medicine, uh, many of the herbs that they were using in their day are still being used today in exactly the same way that they were then. Our Materia Medica is very much dependent upon a history of herbal knowledge that is documented way, way back to the Greeks, and many of the herbs that we use um, depend more on their traditional indications than any scientific analysis, because there are many herbs as yet which have not yielded their secrets to uh, phytochemical dissection. So Western herbalism emphasises its attempt to give credibility to the herbs by understanding their constituents, but it also is very much based on a strong Western tradition uh, that can never be departed from. And I think it was Dr. Rudolf Weiss, I think we've mentioned his name on this program before, I consider him to, to be one of the modern luminaries in embracing, if you like, uh, herbal medicine from a scientific perspective. He's passed on now, but a great German medical practitioner who was also a great uh, phytotherapist or medical herbalist. Uh, and he said that modern herbal medicine is based on two pillars. Uh, one of those pillars was modern science. The second pillar was empiricism or tradition. And so Western herbalism is arguably, arguably, distinct, uh, distinctly uh, separate from the other systems because of the way in which it has evolved in the context of the scientific world, which the, the West has pretty well opened up. But, but interestingly, uh, it's a bit paradoxical that when we talk about Western herbalism, um, and I have mentioned uh, herbs and, and a tradition that goes back to the Greeks that has flowed through, a large percentage of the herbs now that are embodied in Western herbalism in fact, come from the American continent. <laughs> the new world. The, the new world. So Western herbalism is very much dependent upon, if you like, its expansion and, and the taking of its knowledge to other countries where it also embodied the traditions and the usages of herbs in those other countries. And the uh, American uh, selection of herbs has uh, allowed us now to refer to Western herbalism as the Anglo-American system. Now, it's a little bit exclusive because it tends to uh, separate itself from European herbs, but in, in English-speaking countries, Western herbalism is very significantly influenced by the herbs of the American continent, and some of those are the herbs that I want to talk about today. Health Naturally is the uh, program, and Dennis Stewart taking your calls, 492162162. Julia rang that number from Tanilba. Julia, you'd like to know about, well, what Dennis thinks about kombucha. Yes, please, I would. Thank you. Hello, Julia. How are you? Fine, Dennis. How are you going? I'm very well indeed. Look, um, Julia, uh, I'm, I've got nothing against kombucha, but, but I don't use it myself. Um, okay. And I think um, good as its properties might be, um, yes. uh, it's, I see it. Um, like many good products, is being taken up, and perhaps yes. and perhaps a bandwagon effect being associated with it. Um, okay. Now, um, whether it's a craze um, or not, I'm not sure. But it is fair to say that in the uh, how can I call it in the 
food industry and in, in the natural healing world, in the, um, how can I call it, the experimental dietary world, things tend to come and go. Uh, okay. Look at look at the way in which um, the, the you know these a lot of foods were presented, good foods indeed that were purportedly you know they should be eaten uh, on a, almost on a daily basis that they were uh, you know famous foods and uh, foods that could do wonders for your life and all of those uh, foods uh, things like kale for extra uh, for instance yeah. are, are good and I happen to like kale but again again. Um, I'm not going to, to do what some of the literature a few years ago uh, and uh, the trend a few years ago, I'm not going to see myself juicing um, kale every day and pumping myself up on it, good as it might be. I would, uh, I would argue that perhaps, perhaps, uh, kombucha is in that similar category. Okay, right. So does it have any, um, um, any adverse effects, any side effects? Look, uh, here again, I'll give a general statement here. Sure. Too much of any good thing can yeah. potentially become a problem. Okay, and and right. the, this is something that uh, people that uh, talk about using natural things, uh, talk about using herbs, etc., and argue about the safety of herbs, what those people need to realise is that anything can become a problem if it's overdone, overeaten, yeah, and overemphasized. Yeah. Yeah. A, a sensible use of kombucha or any of these other things as part of one's routine and diet, that is, if you like it, uh, sh should be encouraged. But okay. a craze tends to see an over-usage of things, and that's, where, in my opinion, that's when you could create problems. Yes, I understand that. I, you know, too much of anything is no good. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's um, you know, everything in a, in, a, in a balanced form. I'm a, a, a very strong proponent of that old saying, everything in moderation. Yeah, exactly. Mm. All right, well, that's something to, for me to think about. I have an opportunity um, to, to be able to make my own. Well, Our look, daughter has, has look, the mother, what they call well, the mother. Yes, and, and look, I would, uh, I would yeah. encourage you to have a go at that because, again, it's something you're doing yourself. It's not, yes. it's not costing you any money. No, um, it's not you, commercial, you, no. You, you, this is what I was going to say. You're bypassing... Uh, the commercial world and yes. you can uh, see the product as part of your routine something that you're in control of and you can append it to your to your diet and as such it doesn't become a craze it becomes something that you've appended to, to your diet that you're interested in no I, yes. I, I'd, yes. I'd give it a go Okay, thank you, for your, thank you for your information. All right, Julia, and thank you. Have a nice day. I like your show, um, Dennis. <laughs> thank you, Julia. And thank you for your question. That is, um, it's a good topic, though. It's all to do with fermenting, isn't it? Yes. And look, I think it, a lot of it goes down to, to this mm. idea that uh, fermented foods uh, can create uh, an environment within the gastrointestinal tract that encourages a healthier uh, bacterial activity and overcomes some of the functional gut conditions that frequently go under the banner of irritable bowel. Uh, and again, things like yoghurt, uh, my dear old mother would even say apple cider vinegar fitted into that category. All things which arguably in their taste, their fermented state, their sourness, purport to be able to create a better gut environment and, as I've said, overcome some of the many functional conditions that we experience that go under the banner of irritable bowel.
Health Naturally and Dennis Stewart taking your calls on 49216216. And not only that, Dennis, we're talking about herbs and American herbs we're looking at. Yeah, which are indeed. fairly important in Western herbal. Well, as medicine. I said a moment ago, Jane, the Western herbal medicine is fascinating uh, in as much that its roots obviously are deep in the European tradition and culture, but uh, it's a very eclectic system now, largely as a result of the European contact, uh, contact, particularly with the American continent. Most listeners would know something about um, the colonisation of the Americas, particularly by the early Quakers uh, who moved to Pennsylvania out of objection to some of the political and religious restrictions that the crown put on them in England and when they went uh, as some of the first to the American continent they came in contact with a very uh, sophisticated culture the American Red Indians and they developed a wonderful dialogue with them Uh, and I want to emphasize this it was the uh, Quakers from the United Kingdom with their um, fascination their, their own dialect and their insistence in pacifism and uh, when they went to the, uh, to the US, uh, this uh, stood them in good stead with the American Red Indian because there was very little, if any, violence, a great deal of uh, interchange between the two cultures, and the American Red Indians passed on to them a lot of their knowledge about medicinal plants. And the American continent is rich, or let me emphasise, It is so rich in many ways you can understand why the Americans talk about America being God's own country because it is so rich in uh, in flora and so rich in medicinal herbs. And so the uh, hitherto uh, Western herbal medicine system that was steeply, uh, steeped very much in uh, European herbs began to append itself or append to itself some of the great remedies uh, that were passed on to them uh, and uh, many of the Quakers uh, in isolation from Europe uh, and not being able to access many of the European medicinal substances that they'd used previously began to use the American herbs as primary remedies. And so the system of Western herbalism began to be incredibly influenced in it to the extent that as it's practised in English-speaking countries, that is in Australia, uh, which is now one of the greatest uh, users and exponents of Western herbalism in Australia, in Canada, in New Zealand, in South Africa, and in America, in English-speaking countries, um, the, the, the American herbs began to predominate. So that Western herbalism, as it's practiced now, particularly in English-speaking countries, is, if you like, spearheaded, and I would argue is best represented by herbs from the American continent. And a couple of those, and interestingly... One in particular, uh, and I have to be cautious here because others would disagree with me, but I would say that the most representative herb in the Western herbal medicine tradition, influenced increasingly by the Western or American selection of herbs, is the herb slippery elm. Yeah. Now, th- that, uh, the herb slippery elm, and most listeners... I would argue, but who listened to this program would have heard me talk about or mention slippery elm before, but they might wonder why a herb such as slippery elm would, in my opinion, be representative of of the system and represent it in all, in all its potential. 
Well, slippery elm really should be referred to as powdered slippery elm bark. Mm-hmm. If you've if you've ever seen the the uh, the bark of the uh, American uh, herb uh, slippery elm, is it, is it a tree? It's or a tree. It's a tree. And and the, when when uh, and when it's harvested, uh, the bark and it's harvested selectively. In the past, uh, herbs have been raped. They've just been stripped from the continent, and we'll talk about why that's affected the cost of them. But these days, there's great sensitivity, particularly in the United States, about the harvesting of many of these herbs that still are supplied around the world. And I've actually had um, uh, samples of um, slippery elm sent to me, and um, it's it's an interesting bark that comes in big hunks, if you like, which then, of course, undergoes a powdering process. I would say that it is representative of Western herbalism and the American influence by its multiple uses. If you want to use one herb that has profound consequences health-wise, it is slippery elm. And slippery elm powder, which is arguably more of a food chain than a, than a, than a herb, the Americans talk about herbs as medicinal foods. Now, I question that at times, but this is a great example of a herb that can be used at a food level as well as a a medicinal level. But look at some of the ways in which slippery elm powder can be used. used. And it can be purchased quite easily from our good health food stores or I suspect now even in the pharmacy. Look at one of the most important areas in which it works. How many people do you know and I know, Jane, that suffer from upper gut conditions, reflux, heartburn, Mm -hmm. Um, all those irritable conditions that affect the stomach in particular and which have led to a whole industry of drugs that are directed towards those upper gut conditions. I would put it to to listeners and to to practitioners that slippery elm has the potential to lessen the experience of those symptoms to the extent, and I know this because many of my patients have gone through this pathway, using slippery elm regularly in the right dosage and arguably as a powder, as a food, can lead to a situation where reflux, heartburn and other irritable and potentially problematical conditions of the gut, even ulceration, I would argue based on my knowledge of the herb and my experience that it has the potential to provide restoration, healing, and more importantly, protection for the upper gut wall. Now, this is something that I believe people could take on board because I'm not a fan of seeing conditions uh, treated with pharmaceuticals unless all other things have failed. And using something like slippery elm to address upper gut conditions should be, in my opinion, tried before prescription medication is acceded to. And this is where I've found slippery elm most popular in addressing probably one of the most popular conditions that people in our community experience. What I refer to as upper gut conditions characterised by a lot of dysfunction of the stomach and the symptoms of heartburn, reflux and other symptoms. Half the population experiences this and half the population is arguably using medication that not always is needed so to start with 
Slippery Elm leads the pack because it addresses probably one of the most common conditions we experience. But go down a bit further. Health naturally, as we're doing with Dennis Stewart at the moment, 49216216 for your questions. Dennis, talking about slippery elm, mm. and you say we can use it as a food, yes. do you mean we can use it as we use, say, salt or pepper? Look, um, if, you, if you like, yes, it can be sprinkled on. Um, but in order to harness its virtues as a powder, one must take it a little bit more quantitatively. <laughs> and so by this I mean if one uses the powder, the, the idea is to, to talk about it as being used in at least teaspoonful uh, dosages, if we want to use the term dosage. Uh, for instance, I had a, a patient in yesterday, late in the day, um, whose diverticular tendency, she suffered very serious uh, continual episodes of diverticulitis. Now, for the sake of listeners, diverticulitis is an inflammatory condition of the large bowel, or if you like, uh, the pockets, if we like to use that term, that frequently occur on the bowel wall, which most of us would have, I suspect, become inflamed and infected. And then it's a nasty condition which rightly requires to be medically treated, and it's the episodes are successfully medically treated these days, but the problem is that the condition can be ongoing, and this is where complementary medicine arguably has a role to play. Diverticulitis, uh, generally speaking, is a good condition to treat with, with herbal medicine because it is so responsive and the approach is so logical, and part of my treatment is to use significant levels of slippery elm at, at least two heap teaspoonfuls of the powder uh, daily as part of a management technique but this layer this dear lady that i saw yesterday who doesn't see me frequently these days because the condition is is well managed all she does is periodically present to the dispensary and etc uh, etc et but she said in response to your question uh, she said she takes her slippery on the dosage if you like by mixing it in with her yogurt so she takes slippery on with yogurt uh, uh, once or twice a day. Now, I thought that was novel. And in fact, I said to her, if I talk about slippery elm tomorrow, I will mention to the listeners uh, the way in which you take slippery elm uh, by mixing it with your yogurt. And it's logical to do that because the constituents of slippery elm easily, easily can be taken up uh, in, in a semi-liquid preparation and very homogeneously. So... Uh, one can use it uh, that way. Or it, does it have a sweet taste? Or it not tastes so like sweet. malt. Like malt. And, so it, and, in, and in the old days, it was a favourite food uh, as a, a food to give when people were rehabilitating from serious diseases. It was given as a gruel, slippery on gruel, where slippery on powder was mixed with malt as a means of encouraging uh, digestion it is easily assimilated, easily digested. So it tastes like malt. It's not obnoxious. Many herbs are obnoxious, Jane. To the taste. You uh, mm, absolutely. <laughs> I can assure you. Let's be honest and, uh, about this. <laughs> but, but slippery oil is, is not unpleasant to take. So use it that way or uh, some people will spring, uh, sprinkle it on their cereal. Other people will mix it with a little bit of honey and take it. Others will mix it into uh, milk. It doesn't really matter. There are numerous ways in which the powder can be taken into the body in a food form where right from the very beginning, where it passes down the, the gullet 
into the stomach, it sets up an environment of healing and protection. But one area, and I've already hinted at the area, one area where, in my opinion, it is remarkable, and I am pleased to say that increasingly um, I am hearing this patient and that patient mention uh, that uh, their doctor, or in some cases their gastroenterologist, has recommended slippery elm as part of a management. That makes me feel very good. Slippery elm is remarkable for its effects on inflamed conditions of the large bowel. And I mentioned diverticulitis, which is an inflammatory and painful condition, frequently also accompanied by um, diarrhoea, and other conditions also, uh, such as inflammatory bowel disease generally, can benefit from the protective effect of slippery elm as it passes through the system, where it tends to set up an environment of protection and also tends to uh, modify, regulate, or improve transit time and lessen uh, diarrheic tendencies, or in fact, in many cases, assist in overcoming constipative tendencies. It's remarkable and paradoxical in the benefits that it has. And if there is one herb that I would use more than any other herb, it would be the herb slippery elm from the wonderful uh, flora of the United States, um, a remarkable herb, uh, the bark of a tree. Who would have thought that even today it's probably the most popular herb used in Western herbal medicine? Hello, would you like to tell us your name, please? Eric, okay, and your question for Dennis? Last week he was talking about witch hazel and there was a chap rung in that was good for his daughter with hemorrhoids yes. that had sclerosis. Yes, yes. And I just wanted to know... Was it an ointment? Was it a, a you know, some, how, how and what dosage would uh, you be okay. looking at? What type of Terry, I'm glad yeah. you I'm glad you rang about this because uh, uh, in my rooms at Sestock on Tuesday, I saw a lady who was using the distilled extract of witch hazel for very seriously long term. Um, in fact, inflammatory conditions of her lower legs, which were characterised continually by burning, swelling and itch. And I had recommended a lot of things and nothing was helping. And I, had said, I eventually said, look, try witch hazel. The result of that lady using what's called the distilled extract of witch hazel, and I'll say it slowly for listeners, distilled extract of witch hazel, which fortunately is available from our pharmacists, um, that turned the whole history of this condition around. Her legs were remarkably less swollen and the uh, itch and the scratch had largely dissipated. The uh, marks on her legs associated with, with, with scratching had gone. Uh, it was a remarkable indication of witch hazel's benefit in its astringent action on many conditions. But that's only one, and this was a topical application and not an oral application, uh, witch hazel for itchy, inflammatory, red, swollen conditions of particularly of the lower legs. But also, witch hazel made probably its best reputation uh, when it was popularly prescribed. Now, when I say popularly prescribed, probably in mainstream medicine, uh, before the Second World War and perhaps just after, when a lot of herbs were still being used in pharmacy and medicine. It made its reputation there where it was presented as an ointment preparation used particularly for addressing hemorrhoids 
or what are frequently known as piles. It works dramatically there. Now, let me emphasise dramatically, both in causing, in many cases, a retraction of the haemorrhoid and also an overcoming of the tendency for bleeding and the tendency for itch. Now, um, I, I, I know it works that way and the literature supports it. If you can Google it, you'll find that everything that I'm saying is correct. And the good thing about it is some of our compounding pharmacists um, can make up uh, which hazel ointment, which is in various editions of the British Pharmaceutical Codex um, and uh, even the, the British Pharmacopoeia. So if you uh, want something uh, that is very safe, uh, with no steroid attached to it, um, I would suggest get the uh, witch hazel ointment made up by your compounding pharmacist and give it a go. Pauline has rung in from the hill and you've got a question on slippery elm with regard to reflux, Pauline. Hello, Pauline. I have tried several times to um, sort of get off the reflux medication, but... Um, it's very difficult, and I only go a couple of days, and sure. I've become very uncomfortable. And, sure. and and just of late, and I've been on it for a long time, but yes. just of late, um, I did actually probably for the very first time experience the burning. Okay. Let me, just, I, let me say something here very quickly. There are some levels of upper gut, condition, or upper gut problems which rightly and necessarily require medical treatment and some are so intractable that um, they can only be managed by that approach. But on the other hand, I have found that in many patients, the usage of say something like slippery elm has improved their condition even with the pharmaceutical that they might be taking because slippery elm works quite differently to the medication that your doctor would have prescribed. Your doctor probably has prescribed what's called a proton pump inhibitor, and there are many of them, and they work well. The slippery elm does not clash with it and may lead, may lead to a situation where your dosage and need for the preparation could be reduced. I would be suggesting in your case that you talk to your general practitioner about your desire to use something like uh, slippery elm in the context of his or her management there it could work very, very nicely and may even lead to a breakthrough. Re discuss it with your GP, but very quickly, I would say, uh, Pauline, very quickly, um, you, you can very seriously append to a reflux or heartburn treatment um, the herb meadowsweet. I'd like to elaborate on this, but time won't allow me, but a medical herbalist treating something like reflux would use a herb called meadowsweet which is a European herb, an English herb, which has a very significant effect, uh, I'll use simple terminology, in lowering the acidity of the gut. So as an oral medication, in conjunction, say, with slippery elm, that's an approach that a medical herbalist might use. Let me come back to the point, however, that there are some conditions which are intractable and require that medication that your good doctor is prescribed because if it is neglected... It could lead to a serious inflammatory condition uh, that uh, could require even more serious management. Discuss it with your GP, but give Slippery Elm a trial under his management. Bruce has rung in from Belmont with a question on heel spurs, Bruce. What would you like to know? Hello, Bruce. 
Got a house uh, yes. uh, well, back in 05, I think it was, 06, I had a bad heel spur, and I went on uh, silica treatment on your mm, advice, and yes. Fifteen months it took, but it cleared it. Now yep. it's reoccurring. Okay. I would, I would suggest I'd have to be quick because time's gone. I would suggest uh, two minerals, silica indeed, in what's called a celloid form, C E L L O I D, and also using in conjunction with it a mineral called sodium phosphate. Uh, these tend to be abbreviated in celloid form as S seventy nine and SP96. Now, I know that sounds very mystical and very esoteric, purely code names for products, minerals, that go under the name of celloids. Very, all oh, very good luck. Very All the very best with that, I mean to say, Bruce. And uh, that is bringing us to the end of Health Naturally today as we've been looking at Western herbalism, Dennis Stewart. We will indeed look at it more next week, and I'll talk to Roger next week, who's just rang well. in about his need to get some Californian poppy. I can help you with that, Roger. Ring next week. That sounds good. Thank you, Dennis Stewart. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.